It is easy to render thanks unto the Lord during days of ease and celebration, but how does a Christian fulfill the call of giving thanks amidst times of great sorrow and grief? This sermon explores that very question. Our old covenant reading coming from the Psalms, Psalm 107, Psalm 107, as the psalmist begins book 5, Psalm 107, the first nine verses, 1 through 9, Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the psalmist writes, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gather them out of the lands from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distress. And he led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city of habitation. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfied the longing soul and filled the hungry soul with goodness. Matthew, the evangelist, writing to us in Matthew in chapter 5, the first 12 stanzas, the first 12 verses, 1 through 12, and by the same spirit, Matthew writes, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye, when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Thus far as reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto, an, uh, unto us again, is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now, throughout the Holy Scriptures, a myriad of commandments is given in thanksgiving to God. And it is at this time, especially in America, that we are more sensitive to that commandment to give thanks unto the Lord. The exercising of thanks is not only given by commandment, which it is, it's a commandment, but it's also shown to us by example from from the patriarchs, from, from the prophets, from the apostles, even the Lord himself, as a voluntary offering of thanks. An offering of thanks and praise for the God of heaven and earth, for his mercy is, is everlasting. Now note the many ways that the psalmist offers his thanksgiving. In Psalm 26, David declares that he will publish the works of God with a thankful voice. Everything is associated with thanksgiving. Everything that the people of God do, especially here in this example of David, 
He does it with thanksgiving. Notice what he says, 26.7 of the Psalms, that I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all thy wondrous works. So herein is an open testimony of thanksgiving for the works of God in both salvation and in providence. In Psalm 69 and in Psalm 147, the psalmist sings his gratitude once again. Notice Psalm 69.30. I will praise, and notice again, anytime you, you read the phrase, I will, it's, it's a declaration that that is his intention. He is going to do this no matter what gets in his way. I will do this. I will get this done. I will offer thanksgiving. I will offer praise. Notice, I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. Psalm 147, verse 7. Sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praise upon the harp unto our God. So as we sing the Psalms of David, as we sing the Psalter, we are singing with thanksgiving for the things that God has done. In Psalm 50, the psalmist commands God's people to give thanks to the Lord. Psalm 50, verse 14, Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High. David adds an encouragement to give thanks to the Lord in Psalm 95, Psalm 100, and Psalm 107. Notice 95, 2. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto Him with psalms. The only reason why we can stand before God upon the Lord's Day without being molested by the wicked at this point in American history, which is not to say this is everywhere in the world. They are not able to worship God without molestation. But we can. We can. We can worship God without any kind of interference. And so when we enter into the sanctuary of God, we are to enter into His presence with thanksgiving. Make a joyful noise unto Him with psalms. Notice Psalm 100, verse 1, and Psalm 107, 22. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. Be thankful, in other words, render worship unto Yahweh, and bless his name. And let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving, and declare his works with rejoicing. Now in Psalm 30, 35, and 116, the psalmist gives a personal testimony of his own thanksgiving, his own gratitude. Notice what he says, Psalm 30, verse 12. To the end that my glory may sing praise to thee. That is what I am here to do, to be praising God and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks unto thee forever. That is what we are to do. Psalm 35, verse 18. I will give thee thanks in the great congregation. I will praise thee among much people. Psalm 116, 17. I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. Note his vehement command in First Chronicles for the people to be thankful. Here's the king of Israel commanding his people to thank God. Notice what he says, First Chronicles 16, 8. Give thanks unto the Lord. Call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. Verse 34 and following. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. And say ye, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather us together, and deliver us from the heathen, that we may give thanks to thy holy name and glory in thy praise. Notice, this man, even in times of hardship, was giving God praise, giving God thanks. Now, surely, these praises, these these offerings of thanksgiving 
were done by men who did not necessarily have a cushy life. You know, when we read about the, the king of Israel, the prophets, you cannot imagine that they had a cushy life or a life without hardship or a life without grief and great sorrow. Quite the contrary. These were men of great hardship. And yet, even amidst their sorrow, even amidst their grief, even when things didn't go their way from their mouth, we find nothing but thanks. We find an open testimony of joy and thanksgiving to God for all of His wonderful works, for who He is. The saints of old embraced what Paul the Apostle told the Thessalonians and the Colossians years later in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. This is the will of God. And what is our task in this life? To do the will of God. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is about you giving thanks. To the church at Colossae, chapter 3, verse 17, and then chapter 4, verse 2. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Paul tells the church this, he says, Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Notice, as you're praying before God, you're thanking God that you even have an audience before God, before the creator of the universe. In these statements, Paul, a student of the Old Testament, is telling the church that thanksgiving is to be a part of everything we speak and do. It is to be our constant posture before God, a consistency of thanksgiving for the wonderful works that he has done in both our behalf personally and behalf of the kingdom of God Universally. Now the command to give thanks is to be adhered to. No matter what the condition, no matter what our condition is, or the situation that we find ourselves in, we are commanded and we should be willing to give thanks unto God. And this is why why James can say that we ought to count it all joy when we fall into diverse trials and temptations. And did you get that? Count it all joy. This is God's will for you. Now, to be sure, great sorrow can lead to great temptation. And we don't think about that as much. We don't think about sorrow leading us into temptation. Calvin explains, he says this, excessive grief precipitates us into rebellion. Whenever we are overcome with sorrow, and I think the key word here is overcome, when we are overcome with grief, We might become more susceptible, as Calvin says, to rebellion or even apostasy. Bitterness might be our response. Why is this happening to me? Or lukewarmness. Sometimes depression sets in and a sense of, well, what's the use? My life is destroyed because of of my sorrow. Might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Why am I going to continue to give thanks unto God when all these horrible things are happening? A weakened Christian may assuage his or her grief by turning to worldly comforts rather than to the God of Scripture and the fellowship of the saints. And this is why so many people who are overcome with grief turn to alcoholism or drugs or other kinds of perversions. So grief can lead to rebellion. Sorrow could even perhaps result in murmuring against God or questioning His motives or blaming Him for such a terrible event. And it is at that point when we forget the fundamentals of the Christian life, 
Jesus clearly says something that we don't want to embrace or think it really has something to do with us. But he clearly says that we are to take up our cross and follow him. But modern American Christianity knows nothing of cross-bearing. And as a result, modern American Christians know little of how to navigate sorrow. We know little how to navigate deep, deep grief. Calvin, John Calvin, who is no stranger to deep sorrow, explains this. He says, Patiently to bear the cross does not consist in absolute stupefaction and privation of all sense of sorrow as the Stoics. We have nothing to do with that iron-hearted philosophy. For if all tears be reprobated, what judgment shall we form concerning the Lord himself from whose body distilled tears of blood? In other words, grief will be a part of our lives. And we are to not just try to put it away because it's part of our life, it's part of our makeup, it's part of our, our providence. And while it is true that sadness and grief can lock up the soul in great sorrow and restraining the tongue from celebrating the goodness of God and restraining the tongue from thanking God, eventually, for the true Christian, the tongue must be loosed and out must come thanksgiving and praise for the God who hears the prayers of the afflicted. So the true Christian, in the time of grief, in the time of sorrow, they run to the Savior. They don't run from the Savior. They run to the Savior. We then bring a complaint to God. We cry out to Him in our grief, in our sorrow, in our torment. We cry out to the One who said that He will never leave us nor forsake us. And He walks with us through that. And we call upon Him to walk with us through that sorrow, through that grief, so that we can have our tongues loosed and thank God for walking through it with us. Even as He cuts us asunder by His frowning providences, Even though he does that, he also heals all of this for our maturation of faith, for our cleaving to Christ, closing with Christ as our only hope for comfort in our time of grief. You see, God expects us to call upon him in our sorrows and he tells us that he is ready to hear. So we don't have to be swallowed up in that grief, in that sorrow. But the real question is this. How can we give thanks? How can we rightly give thanks when in the midst of confusion, chaos, sorrow, or tragedy? Is it even possible to praise God when when terrible things happen to us? And if that is to be the posture of the saint, giving thanks in everything, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you, how are we to express thanksgiving in the midst of great sorrow? Even as the man of sorrows himself, the one acquainted with grief, constantly thank God on every occasion. How do we do that? Is it even possible? Perhaps a better question is, what must we do to prepare for such a time of sorrow? Because brothers and sisters, sorrow is coming. I don't care who you are. I don't care what station in life you are. Sorrow is coming. And we live in the midst of one of three situations. Either we have experienced great sorrow we are not presently experiencing sorrow, or we are heading for a time of great sorrow in the future, but everyone is heading for a time of sorrow in the future. So how do we navigate that? Because wherever you find yourself, sorrow is coming. But the question is not, is sorrow coming? That's a given. But rather, when it finally comes, how do we deal with it? 
Well, in the midst of the shadow of the valley of death, how do we continue to render thanksgiving to God if that is the will of God concerning us? Is it enough to know that He's working all things together for good to those that are the called, those who are the called according to His purpose? I mean, sometimes we go there, we say, well, God is working everything together for good. But that does little to comfort us, knowing that God is working things out. Intellectually, we might understand that. Theologically, philosophically, we understand that, which is true. But how do we cope emotionally in the reality amidst that great darkness, in the reality amidst that great sorrow and grief? Because our emotions are integrated into our very being. So how do we navigate times of great sorrow? John Calvin gives this advice. He says, the principal mitigation of sorrow is the consolation of the future life. Calvin teaches us in this statement to look beyond the sorrows of this life because sorrows in this life are a given. They will come. And we are to look to the Savior and to the life to come and the life-giving Savior Himself and how God will finally wipe away every tear from our eyes even though we are sorrowing now. What must be remembered is a thankful heart, even amidst sorrow, is the health of the soul because a thankful heart looks beyond the severity of life. It looks beyond the grief of life. It looks beyond the sorrows of life and it holds on to the hope that is set before us both personally and for the kingdom as a whole. And if we are swallowed up by sadness and grief, then we are no longer useful in the advancing of the kingdom. And while there must be a grieving period, and there must be a grieving period, as Calvin said, we are not Stoics. There also must be an end to that time of sorrowful silence. Paul cautions the Thessalonians to hold on to hope while in the midst of sorrow. Notice what he tells the church at Thessalonica, chapter 4, verse 13 and following. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, in other words, those who have died, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, them which also sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, notice verse 18, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Note how Jesus begins his Olivet Discourse. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You think about the scenario here. He gathers the people together. He gathers the apostles together as if to give them this incredible theological dissertation. And he opens up with, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that was a very odd way to introduce the kingdom of God and the attributes of the people of its citizenry. This opening message was distinct from the modern message you find today in in the Christian pulpits where happiness and a trouble-free life is preached ad nauseum. Oh, you become a Christian and everything's going to be great. I'm actually amazed that we have any happiness at all in this sin-cursed world while we're living in a body of death and rebellion. 
It's amazing how we could have any happiness, any consolation. Jesus' message was odd at best. How could anyone be happy? Blessed are the poor. Happy are the poor in spirit. How can anybody be happy rendering sincere thanksgiving to God as a result of an impoverished spirit? It was precisely because Christ had entered into history. That's the reason why they could be happy. And those who understood their spiritual poverty, now, because Christ had entered into history, could rejoice and give thanks for the Savior had arrived to give them the spirit to comfort them no matter what trials or sorrows they had to endure. Isaiah anticipates this in Isaiah 51 verse 3 and following. For the Lord shall comfort Zion. Notice, that is what he shall do. He will comfort. Notice, he will. He will comfort all her waste places. And he will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Certainly when Messiah entered into history, there would be a time of great rejoicing and celebration. Truly, it would be a time of thanksgiving like never before, despite the sorrow-filled events of the sinful world. And the prophets all had anticipated this. Notice how Jeremiah confirms this. Behold, I will bring again the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places. And the city shall be builded upon her own heap and the palace shall remain after the manner thereof. And out of them shall proceed, notice, and out of them, out of the people of God, in other words, shall proceed thanksgiving. And the voice of them that make merry, and I will multiply them, and they shall not be few. I will also glorify them, and they shall not be small. Jesus was telling the people that the kingdom of heaven belonged to the poor in spirit. Note what he doesn't tell them. He doesn't say that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor spirited, or the poor in their estates. Nor does he tell them that the kingdom belongs to the spiritually poor. Those that are spiritually poor are without blessedness. They are without the blessedness of redeeming grace, which is the foundation of Christian comfort among among and amidst many sorrows. But this is not the case for those who he calls poor in spirit. They are the recipients of redeeming grace. And yet they're poor in their own natural spiritual condition. So why do you think Christ begins here to characterize? He's going, he's going to talk about the kingdom of God is like. Here's the kingdom of God. So why does Christ begin to characterize the saint and how this relates to being eternally thankful to the Lord even while sorrowing. Well, notice first, each of the characteristics of the Beatitudes belong to each individual and not many different individuals. In other words, the redeemed saint is someone who is poor in spirit and one who mourns. He is also meek, hungering and thirsting at the righteousness. He is also merciful and pure in heart. The saint also desires to be a peacemaker, declaring the gospel of peace to all men, which often results in persecution. So this is all about one person, the characteristics of one person, one Christian man or woman or boy or girl. The entire catalog of the Beatitudes describes the character traits of a single individual who has been redeemed by the grace of God. When Jesus told the people that those that were poor in spirit would inherit the kingdom of God, he was telling them that the recognition of an impoverished spirit is the beginning point of all other graces. He didn't begin with blessed are those who mourn. He didn't begin with blessed are those who are persecuted. He didn't even begin with blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. He begins with blessed are the poor in spirit because that was the beginning point of all other graces. Without the knowledge of how impoverished one is, 
there can be no real thanksgiving. There can be no real thanksgiving for what has been done to you and for you by the Christ. And therefore, once we realize that by nature we are weak and poor in spirit, we then realize that when sorrow comes, we will be deeply affected. The great Puritan Thomas Watson explains that this poorness of spirit is the root of everything that follows. He explains, quote, You may well not expect fruit to grow without a root, as the other graces without this. Till a man be poor in spirit, he cannot mourn. Poverty of spirit is like the fire under the still, which makes the water drop from the eyes. When a man sees his own defects and his own deformities, and looks upon himself as, I'm undone, then he mourns after Christ. When the heart becomes a valley and lies low by poverty of spirit, now the springs of holy mourning run there. Till a man be poor in spirit, he cannot hunger and thirst after righteousness. He must first be sensible of want before he can hunger. Therefore, Christ begins with the poverty of spirit because this ushers in all the rest. Once the Christian embraces the reality of his or her poorness of spirit, it becomes a doorway for all other graces. Watson, Watson wonderfully calls this a jewel to be highly regarded. The fact that we are poor in spirit, that's a jewel. That's to be highly regarded. It takes away our pride. It takes away our self-sustaining. And we lean upon the Lord because of it. And with the declaration that those who inherit the kingdom of heaven must be poor in spirit, Christ sensitizes them to their great need for Christ, their great need for salvation, their great need for comfort, the comforting of God, the Holy Spirit, especially when the time of sorrowing and the time of grief comes upon them, which in turn brings them to the throne of grace, which in turn brings them to the place where they can say, thank God for it. And it is this that they are to be eternally thankful for, no matter what season of sorrow that they find themselves in. In fact, the Hebrew word for Thanksgiving is the word Eucharisto, which is where we get our word Eucharist, the partaking of the Lord's Supper. And it is at that time when we partake of the Lord's Supper that we are to be reminded, to be thankful for the wonderful blessings given to us by the merits of Christ. But now how does poorness of spirit explicitly translate into Thanksgiving? Once the individual recognizes that he or she is poor in spirit, he or she becomes a Christ admirer. I am poor in spirit, but Christ is rich in mercy. And we become a Christ admirer. We become a Christ lover. We become dependent upon him. We look to him for everything. We are not interdependent upon the Lord. We are dependent upon the Lord. Our breath, our life, everything we are, everything that we we can ever do is dependent upon the Lord. And therefore, when we recognize that we are poor in spirit, we look to Him for everything. Low thoughts of the self translates into high thoughts of the Redeemer. And that's what we must have. High thoughts of the Redeemer. The saint is able to then recognize his need more accurately, which drives him to the throne of grace. It is then when the poor spirit is comforted and lifted above his poverty to see beyond his temporal situation and his temporal sorrowing. This then brings the saint to prayerful praises, thanksgiving, and within the component of prayerful praises, he continues to thank God, and he yokes his prayers with thanksgiving. Note again the emphasis on being thankful when approaching the Almighty in prayer. Notice how these are yoked. When we pray, we give thanks. 
Psalm 69.30. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify Him with thanksgiving. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Make a joyful noise unto Him with psalms. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. Be thankful unto Him. Bless His name. Sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving should be an integral component of our daily discussions before God. Watson again says this. He says, He who is poor in spirit is much in prayer. Not just at dinner time, not just giving thanks for the food, but always, at every station of life, of every time of your being, you are to give thanks because you recognize that without God intervening in your life, we would be undone entirely. So Watson says, he who is poor in spirit is much in prayer. He sees how short he is of the standard of holiness. Therefore, he begs for more grace. He begs for more faith. He begs for more conformity to Christ. A poor man is ever begging. He is ever begging for spiritual arms. He knocks at heaven's gate. He sends up sighs. He pours out tears. He will not go away from the gates of heaven until he has his doll. Is that your prayer life? Because if that's not your prayer life, you don't have a real prayer life. But that is the prayer life of the saint. Ever begging. Ever begging for, for counsel, for comfort, for direction, for strength to carry on, for the continuity of belief, for the continuity of faith, diligence. Is that your prayer life? Because if if it is not, then you have not prayed enough. You have not understood what prayer is all about. In actuality, the poor in spirit are really not poor at all, but rather rich, because they have access to the throne of grace. The Puritans believed that this kind of poverty was actually their riches and nobility, since those that possessed this poorness of spirit were assured of the blessedness of heaven. To them, this poorness of spirit, this, this impoverished spirit, if you will, was their crown of glory. According to the apostle, Christ was made poor so that his people could be made rich. He was made the man of sorrows. He was made the man acquainted with grief so his people could be men and women of rejoicing and comfort. But then Christ adds this, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. So what was Christ's intention as to the type of mourning of which he would comfort? What what did he mean, blessed are they who mourn? Well, when contemplating sorrow, American Christianity, the modern American Christian, usually focuses upon the sorrow that one experiences when something bad happens to them. Now, while this contemplation is beneficial, it can become self-indulgent. In other words, this has happened to me. I need to be comforted. I want to be comforted. And everything now focuses upon my comfort. Now, this is a truncated view. And with this truncated view of sorrow, we miss the big picture. So what does Christ have in view when he speaks of sorrowing and mourning? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, there is the mourning and despair over the consequences of situations, or to put it very fundamentally, over the consequences of sin. The problem with that is, We are often sorrowing over the consequences of a sin-cursed earth, but not over the sin itself. Sickness, death, and tragedy are all consequences of a sin-cursed earth. 
These things should be causing us to mourn, especially as we see the world imploding around us. But we ought to be reminded that the root of the consequences of sin is sin itself. Tragedy and pain, sorrow and grief is the consequence of sin and the sin-cursed earth that we live in. Then there's that hypocritical mourning over sin that Judas and Esau showed forth, characterized by a lack of true repentance. Oh, I'm sorry, but I'm not really repenting. There's no real heartfelt repentance. Next, there is forced mourning without true repentance, where the sinner comes face to face with God's wrath and the very sure possibility that hell is his inheritance. And such was the mourning of Cain. There's also the superficial outward mourning, such as the Pharisee who disfigured his face in the temple to show just how sorrowful he was. I'm thankful, Lord, that I'm not like every man and I'm so thankful and, you know, I'm just such a hypocrite, but he never says that, but that's his kind of sorrowing, the, the pharisaical kind of sorrowing. All of these are fleshly attempts at sorrowing that yield no comfort whatsoever. So what exactly is holy mourning? And what does it produce? What does it mean to to mourn? Well, once a saint comes face to face with his sin, once a, a man comes face to face with the ravages of sin's curse, then he begins to sorrow. Not over, not only over what happened to him, but what's happening in the world. So once a saint comes face to face with sin and the ravages that sin has created upon the earth, then sorrow begins. But it begins on many levels. First, there's a mourning over the sin itself and the shame that comes with it. Then there's the mourning over the pollution that sin brings upon the individual. Then there's the mourning over the pollution that sin brings upon the church and then subsequently upon the entire world. And finally, it is sin that brings tragedy. Sin brings death. Sin brings sorrow. Sin brings grief. The world is full of thorns and thistles and to walk in a pilgrimage upon this earth, you will get stabbed with those thorns and thistles and you will come to face, you will come face to face with mourning and sorrow and grief. But notice the wonder here of verse 4 of chapter 5 of Matthew. Christ does not end with blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. The promise of this type of Holy mourning is comfort. That's the promise. And so among the many sorrows of life, no matter how deep, no matter how great, no matter how cutting, no matter how how many, God declares that there will be comfort amidst them all. But now the question is, how is the mourning soul comforted? How is it that we should prepare to be comforted? How How are we going to navigate sorrow when it does come so that we don't negate thanksgiving? How is the morning soul comforted? For if the soul is not comforted, if we are void of comfort by the Savior, that could lead into the darkness of despair. And the darkness of despair is detrimental to the soul. But notice the phrase, they shall. For they shall. An absolute statement by God who cannot lie. They shall be comforted. So Christ is very careful to use this word as the comfort itself. They shall. In order to assure the saint that God will comfort the sorrowful soul. Christ does not want us to remain in despair. Christ does not want us to remain with grief and sorrow in the darkness of, 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 
our own wretchedness. He wants us to move forward, as hard as that might be. As soldiers of Christ, we swallow it and we look to Christ for salvation. We look for Christ for that deliverance. We look to Christ for that comfort because this is the Lord's promise. So how does that take place? Well, comfort takes place only by faith in the promises of God. So how do we prepare for sorrow? By looking toward the promises of God. Comfort comes when those promises are embraced by the believer, by faith. But we have to know what the promises say. We have to know what Christ is saying to the church. Whenever we are in need of comfort, we must take note of the promises. But in order to understand the promises, we have to read the Word of God. We have to meditate upon the promises of God. Now, of course, sometimes and quite often, when we are in the midst of despair, God sends others into our lives to remind us of those exceeding great and precious promises. That He is always with us. That He has promised never to forsake us. That He has said that He will wipe away every tear that comes to our eyes. That He will walk with us through the rest of this life. So what does that mean for the mourning soul? Well, it means that whenever we are brought face to face with our personal sin, doubts of our redemption, fear of the future, sickness, death of a loved one, we must call upon God, knowing that He will hear us. He will assure us. He will comfort us in our doubts, in our affliction, in our grief, and in our sorrow. That is what He has promised. Knowing that there is forgiveness with the Almighty through the shed blood and restoration of our souls by the Lord Jesus Christ, we are comforted. And knowing that we are comforted, we believe that Christ will comfort us in every situation. And we believe this to be the case by faith, as it is declared in His Word. And knowing this, we give thanks that through our lives, no matter what life gives us, we are then able to give thanks. But what about the church in the world? When we mourn over the situation in the church and in the world, we look at the situation today of the church in the world and it seems as if it's beyond hope. The church seems to be beyond salvation, beyond deliverance. They've, they've traded evil for good and good for evil. And looking upon the reality of what's happening in the world, how then are we to be comforted? Are we not grief-stricken over the blasphemies of the Church of Jesus Christ, over the blasphemy of American governance, over the people? Are we not stricken with sorrow and grief? How are we then to be comforted? Well, again, the answer is the same. The promises of God. How so, you ask? God has promised that one day every knee will bow. Every knee will be subdued. Men will be subdued. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is God to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the Lord God to the glory of God the Father. God has promised that one day the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's His promise. God has also promised that one day nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. That's another promise. God has also promised that the wicked will be judged according to their deeds and be turned into hell. And that's another promise. Notice the psalmist, what he says in Psalm 9, verse 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. That's a promise. There will be restitution. There will be recompense. There will be the return of righteousness. Now David's seeing the ultimate future. The ultimate future of victory. 
the ultimate future of the majesty of God sitting upon the throne of the nations. He declares this in Psalm 37, 9 and following. Notice what he says. For evildoers, and notice the word, shall be cut off. Shall be. An absolute statement. For evildoers shall be cut off. But those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while in the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. That's a promise. I hold on to that promise. You should hold on to that promise. So when the wicked raise up their, their, their sabers against the Christ of God and the church of Jesus Christ, you remember Psalm 37, 9 and 10. And then the next line of the psalm connects the Beatitudes with this very idea of total and comprehensive victory in verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. So knowing this and believing it to be so by faith, we are comforted so that no matter what we see happening in the world around us or to us, we can rest assured that God's promises are sure. Those are the only things we can really count on. The only thing you can count on is you can't count on anything in this world but the promises of God. Those are sure. Those are steadfast. And then we can rest assured that God's promises are steadfast and sure. And He will bring them to pass in the future, in His time, in history. Not in our time, but in His time. The result of this faith, the result of this trust, is thanksgiving. No matter what the situation looks like, no matter how deep the sorrowing is, we must carry on, and we do, and we will carry on by the grace of God, by faith. Having a thankful heart in every situation, as hard as that sometimes is, is the mark of the true saint. The Hebrew writer gives us this final admonition. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, he says, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, giving thanks to his sovereign majesty, giving thanks to his comforting majesty, giving thanks to the victory that comes from his majesty. Thanksgiving to the Lord is one of the highest praises that the saint can give. Therefore, beloved, let us offer those sacrifices of thanksgiving, giving thanks to him for all the great things, not only that he has done, not only for the things that he is doing, but the things that he has promised to do in the future. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.